1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to the end. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is God's word. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for what your word teaches us. Father, we know that you haven't told us a huge amount about what you want us to do when we meet at church, as church. And so we pray that where you have told us what to do, we would listen carefully. Because we would care for the honour of your name and the blessings that come with living life in the way that you have told us to. Amen. Uh, a friend um, who was at a church just nearby in London was taking communion and he was doing it for the midweek group, which was, uh, it was a lot of um, old ladies uh, mainly and early morning communion. And a lot of them had quite a sort of high view of, uh, of the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. And he realized he'd forgotten to, to sort everything out. And it's a big church, so they bulk order everything, and there's huge freezers downstairs. So he had to run down two minutes beforehand and grab a loaf of bread out of the freezer, whacked it in the microwave, turned it up, legged it up, stood there for, for communion. When he came to break it, of course, having just microwaved it, he said, the body of our Lord Jesus broke for you, and the steam just... He said there was this audible gasp, and um, and as he passed out the elements, the hands were sort of shaking like this. And you know, what 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 goes on? It is such an odd thing. I mean, it, if you if you've been a Christian all your life, you just got used to it. But this is just an odd thing to do. What is going on? 
Now, some people do have a sort of mystical, magical view of, of what is happening here. This is, this is some kind of a, almost a superstitious ceremony that goes on. And so even people who are not Christians like to come and take communion because they, they think there is something magical about this bit of bread, about this, this wine. Other people, I guess, uh, sit here, and especially in our culture, I think this is the case, uh, we're quite rationalist and we think, what on earth is the point? I'm an evangelical. I've got the word of God. Why do I need tiny bits of slightly stale bread and wine that just tastes funny? Why do I need that? I trust in Jesus. I rely on his word. Why do I need some weird ritual? It just all seems, well, I don't like sharing a cup with other people and and I don't like the bread and it's not gluten-free. I'm sure there is a gluten-free option. It's just, just, what is the point God's word tells us this is not a magic rite and this is not an empty ritual. It is a sacrament like baptism. In other words, this is a visible word, a sign. It is a spiritual meal. It is a spiritual meal and it deepens and enriches our faith in Jesus if we trust in him as we eat it. It's a spiritual meal that deepens and enriches our faith in Jesus' death if we trust in him as we eat it. And it also bonds us as a community in him. So you and I, as we eat it, we eat as individuals trusting in Jesus and we eat as a family gathering together. And we're going to see, uh, we'll see that from, uh, from this passage tonight. So if you've got 1 Corinthians, uh, open it back to, to um, chapter 11. I've got a slightly different Bible, so I have no idea. Oh, there we go, page 1152. 1152, let's start at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. You are better off not coming to church at all. Now, Paul has had some fairly punchy things to say to the Corinthian church throughout this letter. But this is... Look, you'd have more spiritual benefit if you just stayed at home and watched Netflix. I kid you not. That's what Paul is saying. Your church services are so disgraceful and offensive that God would be a whole lot more pleased if he locked the church doors and all of you just went to the pub. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what's going on? Because I kind of hope we're not doing that, whatever it is. What is happening in the Corinthian uh, communion service as they celebrate the Lord's Supper? In a nutshell, it's selfish divisions. So Paul is going to teach us something that's happening in Corinth. But as he does so, he'll teach us some abiding eternal principles so that we can understand what happens at the Lord's Supper. So verse 18. uh, And in this section, he really just says, look, selfish division is a serious problem. What was wrong? Selfish division. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I can believe it. You want to know what's wrong, Corinth? Here's what's wrong. Your communion services display division and disunity in the church. And Paul says, look, given everything else I know about you, I don't find that all that difficult to believe. Now the essential context for it is back on the other page in chapter 10, verses 16 to 17, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Referring to the Lord's Supper, Paul says in 10.16, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a fellowship, that word koinonia, that a joining together word in the New Testament. Is it not a fellowship? a participation in the body of Christ. 
Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in one loaf. The whole point of the Lord's Supper is to display our unity as one body in Christ. But their services are doing the very opposite. Verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And this is hugely ironic. The Corinthians are divided. And we've seen that throughout the letter, that they are a terribly, terribly divided church. And for them, church was just another venue to play their favorite game of Corinth, of one-upmanship. They played it in in Corinth all the time and they carried the game on as they came into church. And so Christians divided and judged and one-upped over each other. uh, Over the most ridiculous things like which teacher they admired the most. Because depending on who you followed, that made you more spiritual. So in chapter 3, 4, he quotes them saying, some say, I follow Paul. And others say, Paul's just for beginners. I follow Apollos. And and they divide over which is their favorite uh, teacher. Now, Corinth was a city that, that idolized all that was powerful, all that was impressive, and all that was successful and wealthy. And it seems, I think, that they've taken this thinking into the church. So, I'm richer than that girl there. God must love me more. I have impressive spiritual gifts. I speak in tongues. I get up to preach. I must be closer to God than he is, because he doesn't do those things. That's how the Corinthians thought. And worse than that, I guess all of us have ugly, horrible thoughts, but it seems they weren't ashamed to share them in public. It's just how they ran things in Corinth. God must value me more if he's given me more impressive gifts. But the church is built upon Christ. The church is built upon the message of the cross. And the message of the cross is the message of a a saviour who is willing to be despised and rejected. A saviour for whom the, the very... Zenith of his mission was to die in naked shame and apparent failure on a cross. And his followers, his apostles, chapter 4, are described as despised, rejected, the scum of the earth. You see, the divisions in Corinth, they did show who was approved by God all right, but just not the way the Corinthians thought. You see, it was the poor, those without very impressive gifts, who were the ones who Paul seemed to say were much closer to God than those who in the Corinthian church thought they stood out and stood close to God. Okay, so what were the particular divisions that are going on? Uh, Look with me at 20 to 22. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Now, at this stage, it does seem that the Lord's Supper was celebrated as part of a, of a normal full meal. And in fact, it's probable that, uh, that this chapter is, is one of the drivers to, to that changing. And so what would happen is you'd have a normal meal, and then at the end of the meal, or partway through the meal, uh, you would... Uh, you would discuss what Jesus had said and you would celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. You'd have uh, the, the special moment within a normal meal. 
And it seems that the, um, uh, the wealthy, who probably didn't have to work, would, uh, would turn up early um, with, a, with a slow roast pork shoulder and, uh, and a, fine, a fine riocha to uncork while they're there, and, and they would enjoy a rather fine meal. The poor, which presumably would have included numbers of slaves, would, well, it's not quite so easy for them to just do what they want when they want it. So they get out when their master lets them. Perhaps uh, a lot of church services, from what we know, the early church met very early morning. If you've been doing brutal manual labor, it's not that easy to get up very, very early in the morning. And so they would, uh, they would arrive when they could. And even when they could arrive, they certainly couldn't afford the sort of food that the, the wealthy were bringing. And so they would stand at the side until the spiritual moment took place. And then they perhaps would join for the, the ritual. So what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't people bring their own food to church? Well, Paul says, what's wrong is this. The divisions that are normal in the world out there should not be normal in the church in here. And yet at Corinth they were. The divisions that are just normal in society out there are not meant to exist in here. See, the heart of the gospel is that you and I, every single person in this room tonight, like every other person in the world, is a sinner, unwelcome before God, incapable of earning his acceptance. And that through Christ, all of us alike are saved. All of us alike become adopted as his children. All of us alike share in his inheritance. And all of us become homes for his Holy Spirit. And so he says the central truth of the gospel, which is that we are all united in our sin... And we are all given an equal status in Christ is utterly denied when you have hierarchies and divisions in your church. Now it is different for us. Uh, we no longer bring meals to the communion service. In part, as I say, I think because of this passage, the uh, the, the churches uh, started to to take things differently and have a ceremony that just focused exclusively on the spiritual feeding. And in many ways, the truth is, when you look around our church, we are quite a similar bunch in many ways. And that brings its own dangers, though. Let me ask uh, this question. How easy is it for somebody who's different to join us? It's very, very sad. I was uh, talking to um, one of the pastors at uh, our, one of our sister churches in the Commission Network down in Dundonald, a guy called Joseph, who's the, the pastor of the Korean congregation, the Korean language congregation that meets there. And there are a number of North Koreans in their congregation who have um, lived unspeakable horror in North Korea, escaped through China, made their way um, to the West and arrived in London. And they tried to join a number of the South Korean churches in the sort of New Malden area where most of them are. And they've been told, this, this is really a church for South Koreans, to be honest. I'm not sure you really fit in here. And just politely ushered out. Isn't that horrific? Now I hope, I really hope and pray we would never, ever, ever do something like that actively turn away other people from this church because they're different. But I guess the question for us is, do we passively erect invisible barriers? Do we fail to make people feel like they're welcome? Because that's the thing. When people are like us, they assume this is a place for them. But if somebody's very different from us and they come in here, we have to make them feel welcome, or effectively we're saying you're not very welcome. 
you have to convince people who are different. We want you here. We want you in this family. And I want to ask us, are we radical in reaching out across the barriers of our culture to make real friendships? The sort of invisible boundaries of age, of accents that show a different upbringing and probably a different sort of job maybe. Styles of dress or lack of style of dress. You know, the, the ridiculous things that actually characterize how and why we make friendships. How much do each of us invest in knowing and loving people who are different from us? Serving the people that we don't click with, who we find a little awkward and difficult. And the question is, is there a breadth to my friendships in church which is different from the breadth of friendships you expect in the world out there? Does the way that I treat other people and welcome other people make the world out there look in and think, gosh, that is something? Or am I characterized by friendship in church with people like me and no one else? And Paul would warn us, if that is the case, if I only hang out with, if I subtly exclude people who are not like me, there is a whiff of hypocrisy about our profession of faith. It's a serious issue. Okay, that's the problem at Corinth, selfish division. And I hope that we'll work hard to to make this a place of genuine community and broad community. But what is it then? He's told us what uh, the problem is in the uh, communion services. He now tells us what should be at the heart of the communion service, and that is a sharing in the death of Jesus. Now, if you know anything about uh, church history, you'll know that there are huge disputes on the precise meaning of these verses. Uh, and that is true. But what is, whilst it is uh, true that there are disputes about the edges of them, the center is blooming clear. And so we're just going to stick with that, if that's all right. Um, a lot of people have been at the weekend away. We could have another 45 minutes discussing the minutiae. I think we'll just stick to the big obvious truths, if that's all right by you. Nobody is looking too worried. Um, it's also worth saying, this isn't the only passage in the Bible to address the Lord's Supper, but it is probably the most significant, the, the fullest one. Um, so what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a sharing in the death of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a, a communal sharing in the death of Jesus. A communal sharing in the death of Jesus. Now, we've already talked about the sharing uniting aspect. That was the background in, in chapter 10 that Paul is so appalled at being seeing undermined. Um, but it, it is, uh, he now reminds them uh, what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night before he died and shows three ways in which the Lord's Supper is a sharing in the death of Jesus. And they are, we remember his death, we celebrate the new covenant, and thirdly, we proclaim his return. We remember his death, we celebrate the new covenant, and we proclaim his return. So firstly, we remember his death. Now, I don't think Jesus means literally in these verses that his, it is his physical body any more than in John 10 verse 9 when he says, I am the gate. He means that he is literally a wooden door. It's symbolic language. And it's about the remembering of his death through the symbols of the bread and the wine which, which symbolizes his, uh, his body and his blood. Right, let's look. Uh, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The emphasis, do you see, is on remembering his death. And how tragic that that's even necessary. How tragic that we should have to be told to remember that the Son of God died for us. But we do. We need to be told because, look, life is busy. It, it just is. There's a whole lot going on and I get distracted. And when you come to church, you know, the Bible's a big book. And there's, there's just stacks of stuff in it about the character of God, about salvation history, about the care for the poor, about racial integration, about evangelism, about heaven, about hell. There's loads of stuff in here. And Paul said when he arrived in Corinth, at the start of 1 Corinthians, he resolved, I will know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And Jesus wants you and I not to forget his death. And so he gave us this meal to force us to remember. There's nothing that tells us how often we should have it as a church. We do it um, once a month, morning and evening, and then in the prayer meeting once a month as well. But the point is, you cannot escape remembering Jesus' death if you biblically carry out the Lord's Supper as we're meant to. Because it forces us to remember his death. And Paul reminds us here what Jesus taught his followers, that his death, Jesus' death, is at the heart of Christianity. And I just want to gently say, if it's not at the heart of your understanding of Christianity, it may be that uh, people haven't really explained what the Bible says about Jesus to you. So if, you, if you're sitting here and you think, I'm not sure, I do think that the death of Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. It's worth just uh, taking the time to look at the Bible and see whether, whether your understanding of Christianity matches what Jesus says it's all about. So we remember his death. Secondly, we, remember, uh, we celebrate the new covenant. Verse 25, uh, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. In remembrance of me. A covenant's a binding, a binding relationship like a marriage. And the old covenant was the covenant with Moses and it was wonderful. In that covenant, God took a, a slave nation, the Israelites, and made them his people. He promised to be their God. It's an extraordinary relational act. And he gave them the prophet Moses to, to, to deliver his word to them. And he gave them priests and sacrifices so that when they sinned, there would be a way for, for them not to be destroyed. But the new covenant is better by far than the old covenant. So we're promised in the, throughout the Old Testament things that will happen in the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we're told, no longer would God's word be just a, a word out here, but it would somehow get in here. That God would give us uh, new hearts that would long to obey his law. Ezekiel 36 says the, the time will come when there will no longer just be symbolic sacrifices of animals, but God would really cleanse us and wash us totally clean from our sin through Jesus' death. And in Joel 2.28, we're told it won't just be a special class of people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings who, who have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on them. Everyone, all your sons and daughters, every Christian will have the Holy Spirit come and live inside us. The new covenant is an awesome thing. Jesus' bloody death bought all of those privileges. His death sealed the new covenant, and this ritual celebrates it. 
It's about his death. It's about the new covenant. Thirdly, we proclaim his death. Verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, every time we eat this meal, we declare to ourselves, to each other, and to anybody who's watching, the death of the Lord Jesus is enough for each and every sin of each and every sinner. We declare that. And we declare that the day will come when he will return. So the Lord's Supper is uh, a remembrance of his death, a celebration of the new covenant, and a proclamation of his death until the day he returns. It looks back. It looks up to Jesus and it looks forward to the day when we won't have bread and wine like this, but we'll have a feast in the new kingdom. Okay, that's what it is. That's what was wrong at Corinth. So how should we take it? Uh, We should take it conscious of the cross. This is the attitude now we should have as we gather. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What on earth does he mean by unworthy? Uh, Am I unworthy of eating this if I've sworn this week? If I lied to cover myself at work? If I looked at porn on the internet? How bad do you have to have been? And how recently do you have to have been bad? Well, look, uh, let me take you back to school. There is all the world of difference between an adjective and an adverb. I say back to school. Most of you didn't learn grammar, did you? Uh, back in my day, we did. Um, and uh, so I will give you an education just for free. This is just for free. There's a difference between adjectives and adverbs. An adjective describes a noun. An adverb describes a verb. The adjective would be unworthy. A person. Unworthy person. It doesn't say that. It says whoever eats unworthily. As in not an unworthy person, but an unworthy action by a person. All of us are unworthy people. That's why Jesus had to die for us. So you can't mean uh, whoever is unworthy because that describes everybody. You've got to be unworthy. You've got to recognize you're unworthy to be welcome at the Lord's table. So what does it mean to eat unworthily? Well, he warns us, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. It involves discerning the body of Christ. Now, in the context of this passage, that could mean uh, recognizing that everybody here is part of the same body with me. It could mean that. So, uh, examine yourselves. Are the people that I have no interest in loving and knowing at church, are the people I look down on at church, are the people I look up to and think are better than me? It could mean that. I think it does include that, but I think it's probably more general. I think he's saying, uh, discern the body of Christ. In other words, this is not just bread and wine. It symbolizes the reality of the death of Jesus, the body of Jesus on the cross. So we should examine ourselves. As we get ready to eat the bread and drink the wine, do I see the body of Jesus or just a ritual? Do I discern, do I remember the body of Christ who died to destroy sin, or am I happy to eat this? cherishing sin in my heart and not caring do I discern the body of Christ whose death destroys all the barriers between humans or am I happy with well closet racism or just an unwillingness to to bother engaging with people who are different from me or difficult 
Do I discern the body of Christ who died pouring himself out for others? Or am I happy with, well, I feel really bad when I come across the needs of others, but I never actually do anything about it. Nothing costly. Paul says, discern the reality to which this bread and this wine points and examine yourself. Do I really get the death of Jesus? And what on earth are we to make of verses 30 to 32? As he, as he talks about those who failed to do so. That is why many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. It does not mean all sickness is caused by sin. The Bible is abundantly clear on that. In John 9, uh, the disciples come across a guy who's blind and have a really nice, uh, gentle conversation in front of the guy saying, who sinned, uh, this guy or his parents, that he's been blind since birth? And Jesus says, don't be stupid. This guy didn't sin and neither did his parents. This happened so that God's glory would be revealed. Jesus is very, very clear. Furthermore, you and I are not apostles. So we don't have the revelation of God to tell us what this sickness or that sickness means. So let's be very, very careful. What it does mean is that God loves us. Excuse me? That, that's what it means. It means God loves us. Well, how do you get that from these verses? Well, these verses tell us that God afflicted the Corinthian church with sickness so serious that some people in the church died. And he did it because the church was being so utterly ungodly that their behavior was taking them away from Jesus Christ. Now it doesn't say that it's the ungodly ones who got sick necessarily, just that sickness came into the community because the community was being wicked. And it's a sign of God's love because of verse 32. Nevertheless, when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned in the world. In other words, the Corinthian church is like someone who's got blind drunk and fallen asleep on the sofa smoking and just slumped out in their alcoholic stupor and set light to the sofa and the house is on fire. And God loves them. So God slaps them hard around the face to wake them up and drag them out so they're not burned to death. That's an act of love. It's tough love, but it's love. And the words discern, verse 31, and then judge, disciplined, condemned in 32, they're all from the same root. The same word about judgment. God saying, look, if you won't judge your own sinfulness, if you won't judge that, then I'll bring disciplinary judgment on you now to wake you up so you won't face eternal judgment in hell. Gulp. Now that may not be what we thought God was like. But please don't think it makes him any less loving. God loves this church in Corinth as much as he loves us. And so God won't let them blindly wander away from him to eternal judgment. He will do whatever it takes to wake them up so that his much-loved children will not burn to death but will be saved for eternal life. So now we need to be hugely careful with this, hugely, hugely careful. One question we should ask uh, if there's just abnormal amounts of sickness in our church or in my life is, might God be waking me up to, or waking us up um, to the fact that we're totally ignoring him and indulging sin? Most of the time the answer would be no. Like most Christians, I'm struggling and failing in many areas. 
but I'm fighting and failing rather than failing to fight. But if I find, actually, gosh, I've been blinding myself and hardening myself to things I know to be wrong, then thank God for waking you up. Turn back to him. It doesn't mean you instantly get better. It does mean you're not heading towards eternal judgment. Uh, What does that mean for us now? I think it means we should examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves as we come before the table. If you're not sure that you trust in Jesus Christ, then there will always be a number here who, who are in that category. Then this meal isn't for you yet. But pray as, uh, as it's being served out. Pray that God would help you to understand the truth about Jesus so you would know whether you can put your trust in him. If you've fallen out with somebody at church, as happens because we're a bunch of sinners, uh, whether they're here tonight or not, then don't take this meal and be a hypocrite, declaring unity. Sort it out. Who cares if somebody else sees and thinks, oh, I wonder what's going on. Who cares? What matters much more is what God sees. We're always going to have some disputes. A church is a place where we sort them out rather than pretend they don't happen. If you are stubbornly resisting God's will and cherishing sin in your heart, then don't drink judgment on yourself. Don't do it. Don't trade eternal paradise for earthly pleasure. And don't be a hypocrite because God can see. If you are painfully aware of your sin and you feel guilty and shameful and unworthy then please come for communion because you are well qualified to share in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for sinners like me and like you. And if you recognize you're a sinner, you're welcome at his table. If you're struggling with doubts in the Christian life, then you're very welcome. Come and deepen your trust in the truth of the Lord Jesus and his death for you as you eat and drink these visible words. The final verses just summarize what he's been saying. Verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so when you meet together, it won't result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further instructions. So don't come tonight because you're physically hungry. There's hardly any to eat. Don't come because you like rituals. It won't do you any good as an empty ritual. Don't come because you're worried what others will think if you don't come. Come to feed on Christ. Come because, like me, you're a sinner that needs saving. Come because you're a doubter who needs their faith deepened. Come because you forget so easily that Christ died for you. Come because you're an individualist who struggles to act like you're a member of a family. Come and feed on Christ. We're going to pray in a minute as we go through the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. So I'm just going to leave us with a minute's quiet to examine our hearts.